Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.deville.church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this morning. We pray for your will. We pray for um, connection with you. We pray for you to reveal, for you to uh, shine your light in the darkness as the song was sung this morning. We pray that we will feel your love, your arms wrap around us one more time because you're faithful. You're so faithful to love us. You're a loving and present and consistent Father. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. All right. So you all know we've been going through the discipleship series, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and I want to reiterate again, in this small little book, it's called A Day by Day. Um, we'll be starting week three, which you could have already started since um, last Wednesday or whatever, but uh, week three, and there's a day by day. There's two of them per day. You could do one in the morning, one for lunch, or one for lunch, one in the evening, or whatever, but two a day. And I don't want to stop reiterating how important it is to stop to be with Jesus. He waits for you. He looks for you. He longs to be with you. He wants to wrap his arms around you. He's the one that's true and faithful and consistent and caring. His love is unconditional. He, he never changes. He's, he's one that doesn't judge but knows the inner parts and the outer parts. He knows all the conversation. He's there consistent. He wants you to be in the most safest place, which is with him in his arms. And this is just a tool to be able to stop, right, and be with him. He, he gave us an example of how he would be with the Father in the mornings early, many times away from everyone else. And that's what Jesus wants. So please, if there's one thing that you could learn out of discipleship is to stop and be with Jesus. All right. Um, a little recap. You know, one of the things when it comes to discipleship is the big question is, what's the problem? You know, what, what happened? What's happened to Christianity? What's happened to discipleship? They say less than, than 20% people are actually in some type of discipleship day by day. What happened? What's happened? And we realize that there's something that's going on. We, we, we can see people in church, and, and we can label, our, label ourselves as Christians, and, and we can have activity, you know, and, and do things um, in ministry, and we can have knowledge where we learn the Bible and, and learn theology, but yet underneath all that, the peace and the joy and the connection and the actual experience of Jesus in our lives is missing. Add on top of that, the church leavers, right? Those that have been hurt, those that have gone through things, and all of a sudden they no longer are with us. Or the ones that have left, but they're still with us, right? There's times in our walk where we're still in church and we're still doing this thing and we're going along with the motions, but we've checked out, we've disconnected from each other, we've disconnected from the church, from Jesus himself, right? Right? So we have that, and, and so that's some of the things that we've covered, that there's this iceberg, and on this iceberg, there's this part that shows and that people can see, and then there's the underneath, right? The place, the thing that people cannot see. Um, 
we learn that knowing ourselves, like we've never been asked that question, like who are you, you know? How do you deal with anger? How do you deal with fear? What were you told about when it comes to, to, um, to anger and fear, you know? What are your dreams? What are your desires? Have you even, even asked that question? And, and in order for us to know God, we gotta also know a little bit about ourselves, right? In order for us to live in, as new creatures in Christ, we gotta know what the old creature looked like and what are the tendencies. Because I don't know about you, uh, when I accepted Christ, it wasn't like all of a sudden I had no problems, no habits, no hangups, everything was perfect, never had a bad thought since then. Never went to the same old friends and done the same old things. I just, all of a sudden, I was just, I'm great. Like right now, I'm just great. I'm perfect. It hasn't happened. I'm still waiting. So how did my life end up being the way it was and the way it is? How did I get those habits? How did I uh, uh, continue to, to, to follow those patterns? How did I learn to deal with life the way I do it? How do I view life? How did I get to this view, Right? My view of myself, my view of other people, my view of relationships, my view of God, how I see God. We gotta get to know ourselves. We gotta ask ourselves, how do I see things? How do I interpret things? Where did that come from? This next step we're, we're talking about now in chapter three is going back, in other words, and, 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 other, and for us to be able to go forward. Now, I do wanna say this. Um, True spirituality or spiritual maturity is not about denial or illusion. It's about reality. It's about reality. The reason why we go back, looking back to our parents, our uncles, our aunts, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, their brothers and their sisters and their family, and we start to look at these patterns, it's not to blame. I know in our fallen state, right, Adam wanted to, to blame Eve, and we've been in that same curse ever since, not curse, but we've been affected by that, that we have this tendency to blame. We're not doing this so we could blame, okay? We're not going to look at, at, at our upbringing because we want to blame. We look at the past because when you're looking to the past, the present becomes illuminated. It illuminates the present. You're able to see it. And make no mistake, though, it's very painful. It's hard to look back and see what was mom like, what was dad like, right? So discipleship then is putting off the sinful patterns of, of our habits that our families have had our families of origin and being transformed now as new members of Christ's family and living a new life, like the Word of God says. You've been transformed, right? So we're being transformed into this new family. But we've got to be able to know what those old habits and those old patterns are. And that's what we're going to do today is we're going to look back a little bit and we're going to talk about that. And before we do that, I want to just talk a little bit about some of the Ten Commandments that we might have in our families. Here's some of the Ten Commandments that we have um, um, when it comes to money. Money is the best source of security. The more money you have, the more important you are. Make lots of money to prove you made it. Maybe about conflict. Avoid conflict at all costs. Don't get people mad at you. 
Maybe when it comes to conflict, it's loud, it's angry, it's constant fighting. That's normal. What about sex? Sex is not to be spoken about openly. Men can be promiscuous. Women must be chaste. Sexuality and marriage will come easy. How about grief and loss? Sadness is a sign of weakness. You're not allowed to be depressed. Get over your losses quickly and just move on. These are some of the Ten Commandments when it comes to these areas. Expressing anger. Anger is dangerous and bad, so we must never express our anger. Or if we're going to express our anger, we always explode in anger. Right? Or we're sarcastic. There's always sarcasm. Sarcasm is acceptable. It's just another word for anger. How about when it comes to family? That we owe our parents for all they've done. We're always indebted. What about maybe never speaking of our family's uh, stuff in public, right? Hanging out their laundry to dry. Maybe a duty to family or a duty to culture, and it comes before everything, even even before God's word. What about relationships? People are not to be trusted. They will let you down. Nobody will ever hurt me again. Don't show vulnerability. How about attitudes for different cultures? Only be close to friends with people who you, who you are like. Don't marry a person of another race or culture. Certain cultures or races are not as good as mine. How about success? Success is getting into the best schools. It's making lots of money. Success is getting married and having children. How about feelings and emotions? You're not allowed to have certain feelings. Your feelings are not important. Reacting with your feelings without thinking is okay. See, we have these Ten Commandments that we have in our families that have been passed on from generation to generation. There's a study called the Beaver System Model. The Beaver System Model uh, puts a number, level five through level one, five being the worst, of the health of a family. Let me see if you can see some of your family in, in one of these for a moment. This is a severely, level five is the family in pain. This is a severely disturbed family. Real leadership is totally lacking. There's chaos, uncertainty, confusion, and turmoil are the adjectives that describe these homes. Conflicts are never dealt with or resolved. There is no ability to look at issues with clarity. Does it sound familiar? Level four, a little less than level five, the borderline family. This is a polarized family. Instead of anarchy, as in level five, it's dictatorships in rules. Instead of no rules, this home has nothing but black and white rules. They are rigid ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving that are accepted of all members. Individuals cannot say, I disagree with what you said. How about level three, the rule-bound family? The family is not in chaos or under a dictatorship. It is a healthier than level four. 
feeling loved and good about oneself, however, depends on obeying the spoken and unspoken rules of the family. If you loved me, you would do all the things you know will meet with my approval. There is an invincible referee with the rules of system being more important than the individual. A subtle level of manipulation and intimidation or guilt permeates the room or the home. Now, level two and level one are usually the more of the healthier type. Level the adequate family and the optimal family. In these families, there is an ability to be flexible and cherish each individual member while at the same time valuing a sense of closeness, right? There's individuality. There's difference of opinion, different likes. But yet there's still closeness. Good feelings, trust, teamwork by the parents enable members to work through difficulties, difficulties and conflicts. You know that mom and dad have that we're, we're going we're to get through this. We're going to work through this, right? What distinguishes level two families from level one can be summed up in one word. Watch this. Delight. Delight is the difference between level one and level two. Level one families truly delight in being with one another. These are some of the things that we see in our families. These are some of the things that we can look at and to know there's patterns. So in chapter 3, you will find that there is a genogram. And I want to encourage you to make a genogram. And it's basically like a, like a, what's the thing when you, yeah, genealogy, yes, but it's called genogram. So you put, you know, as far back as you can go, you know, grandma, grandpa, his brother, his sister, her brother, her sister. What was their family like, you know? Are they still married? Are they not married? Was there alcoholism? Was there abuse? Were they a business person? Were they a nurse? Um, was there college? Was there high school dropout? Was there, you know, and you start putting it all together as far back as you can go. And believe me, you start asking these questions to your family, you just tell them like it's a research project or something because they're going to be freaking out on you. Like, what do you mean? Why, why, you know, why are you asking all these questions? But start putting it together. And I want to encourage you to do it, okay? And you're going to see these patterns to this day. How do they handle conflict in the home? You know, were both parents present? You know, uh, was there, was there, a, was there a, a loss in the family? Was someone uh, rejected in the family and cast out? right? Was there um, any murder or, or, or divorce or, or loss of a loved one, right? Any accidents that happened? All that, put it all there. And how did they react to that? You'll start to find and see, and then just look at, you know, as you come on down the line to your family and, and begin to look at that. Now, we're going to pick up a story in, not a story, a life, a real actual uh, life story, um, Genesis chapter 37. So if you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to pick up the life of Joseph. Now, I had um, our uh, sound team and presenters put up, get some of the scriptures. They're not going to have all of them, so bear with me. But if you follow me in chapter 37, along through this, we'll, we'll stay right in point. So when you have chapter 37, say amen. All right.
you guys are all quiet this morning. I got too serious too quick. I didn't come out with the jokes this time, so you got to lighten up a little bit. Just kidding. We're going to get deep again. Here we go. Hold on. Okay. Chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. Now, who's Jacob? Jacob is the son of Isaac. Who's the son of Isaac? I mean, who's Isaac? Isaac is the son of Abraham. So we got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here we are three generations later, and this is Jacob. Now, these are the generations of Jacob, verse 2. Verse, and it says, Joseph being 17 years old. So here is a 17-year-old young man, and his name is Joseph. He was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, which is basically saying his brothers were not his full brothers. They were half-brothers. Had the same father, but two different mothers. And there was ten of those brothers. He was shepherding flocks alongside them. It says, And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. I'll just do a spoiler alert real quick. Joseph is very emotionally healthy. And it's amazing to even see this story. I want to say it's one of the greatest stories in God's word. Not the greatest, but one of them, right? Jesus is the greatest story. So what we find here is we find Joseph bringing a bad report. Now, if any of you have ever grown up in a family with brothers and sisters, you do not want to be that guy that brings a bad report, right? You do not want to be that person that lets mom and dad know what the brothers and sisters have been doing. But I want to let you know something, that Joseph was willing to step out and say the truth and be honest and be real, number one. Number two, those brothers must have been pretty bad because this wasn't like, you know, he spilled the, spilled the milk, right? Or, or, or lost one of the sheep. Like, this is, this is bad. So he brings a bad report to the father. What makes a quick uh, negative environment for them is that the father does not know how to deal with this. He does not know how to talk through what is going on with the brothers. He doesn't deal with reality. Um, verse 3 says, now Israel loved Joseph. Who's Israel? It's Jacob. I got confused, right? But anyways, Israel, and I don't know why God just starts switching names on me, but it's okay, God, you know. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. In other words, as he was older, he had uh, Joseph. And he made him a robe of many colors. One of the tragedies and the sad things here is um, and it says that Jacob loved Joseph more than the other brothers. He began to show favoritism towards Joseph. He goes to the point of making him a special coat. So not only am I going to treat you this way, but I'm also going to put a label on you and, and stick you, you know, make you, uh, separate you from the rest. You know, his other brothers have worked for years, possibly 17 years. I don't know how old his brothers are. They're older, though. And they've been with the father this whole time, and the father decides to favor this one. That's not a good environment to favor, to play favorites. It's not. And so we find here... Um, 
Verse 4 says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So here we find this favoritism, right? And we find these brothers start to hate him. Now, the brothers had a responsibility here to deal with why they could not stand that he was playing favorites with Joseph. But they didn't. And it says they hated him. Now, guess where you think Jacob got playing favorites from? He got it from Isaac. Isaac, Jacob's father, favored Esau. Isaac's father, where do you think he got it from? He got it from Abraham. Abraham favored Ishmael. Question, do you think the father Jacob has some stuff going on underneath and that he has not dealt with and that he's passing on to his sons? Yes. See how all of a sudden from three generations it's being passed on in this story and it becomes tragic. Tragic, tragic, tragic and we're about to read about it right here. It says, he said to them, and then, and then so we find Joseph telling his brothers a dream, right? And this dream is that they're going to bow down to him one day, and that even his, his, his mom and dad are going to bow down to Joseph, right? And we know the story, that he has this dream, and, 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 and it actually starts to come to pass. So we'll go to verse 37, uh, I'm sorry, verse 18 to 20, for a sake of time. They saw him from afar off. So now uh, Jacob tells um, Joseph, go out and see what your brothers are doing and how they're doing and give me a report of what's going on. Yeah, right? So then they see him coming as they're far away. And it says, they see him from afar off. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say to the, that fierce animal, that a fierce animal was devour, has devoured him, and, he, and we will see what will become of his dreams. So we see that they hate him, and that now they want to kill him. Do you see how the stuff underneath, the anger, the, the jealousy, becomes what? Murder. Can you imagine the importance, again, of dealing with stuff below the iceberg in our lives? The stuff inside of us and underneath will drive us to do things on the outside. So we find that. We find that he, um, we find the backlash that he gets from his father's favoritism. See, now, just before this, his brothers and his father said, what are you talking about? We're not going to bow down to you, this dream. But Joseph had the guts enough to go ahead and he knew himself enough and knew God enough to say, this is a dream that God gave me, Right? This is what's going to probably happen. He was knowing that it would hurt everybody, knowing that he'd be going against the grain, knowing he'd get backlash even from his own father. He still tells him about the dream. And then we see this, this, this hate played out. Now with this hate played out, they obviously put him in a pit, and um, Reuben steps in and says, let's put him in a pit and don't let him get murdered. And then what happened? The, the Ishmaelites turn around and get him out of the pit, and they take him into slavery. And verse uh, 31 through 34, verse 31 says, and then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a, a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to his father and said, this is, this we found 
please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. What do we find here? We find the sons lying to their father, all 10 of them. All 10 of them lie. Do you think that there's any lying in their history? Guess where you think they learned to lie from? Abraham lied twice about Sarah being his, his, his sister instead of his wife. Isaac and Rebekah, which is Judah's, uh, uh, um, Jacob's, grandpa, uh, Jacob's father, lied their whole marriage. It was characterized, their marriage was characterized by lies, right? There was a lot of trickery there. And then Jacob lied to just about everyone. Guess what Jacob's name means? Deceiver. And now his ten sons are lying. Ten sons. They're going to watch their dad mourn day after day after day. I mean, it's not just that they're lying, but they're watching their dad like lose his mind because he lost his son. And it's a lie. What's crazy is just after this, it says they sat down and ate. Like, how do you do that? How do you, uh, I'm sorry, just before this, when they put him in the pit, they went and they ate. I mean, how do you eat after you just put your brother in a pit? You see how it hardens the heart, the stuff that's not dealt with. Now, for time's sake, we're going to go to uh, Genesis 43, 27 through 30. We know that Joseph is sold into slavery, right? And he's, he's, he's taken to uh, the Egyptians, and he's there. And we know that favor is found with Joseph, that, that the Lord was with him. It says it like two or three times. The Lord is with Joseph. And he, everything he touched prospered. And remember, as, as I ask you guys, like, seriously, spend this time with God. Stop and be with Jesus why? Because when the Lord is with you, there is favor. When the Lord is with you, what you touch will prosper. Now, I'm not talking about hyper-spiritualism or a prosperity gospel. I'm just saying, like, there are things that are going to happen in your life that are going to say, there's no other way than it was Jesus in my life. Just being with Jesus, there is favor in that conversation and stopping and being with him. This is real important because we find this with Joseph, that the Lord was with Joseph. 43, um, verse 27 through 30. And he inquired about their welfare and said, okay, so we find Joseph. And he, he uh, obviously, you know, um, rises to the top and gets thrown in jail because he's accused of sleeping with um, Potiphar's wife. And which is not true, and we'll go back to that in just a minute. And then all of a sudden there's a dream that can be interpreted, and he interpreted a couple of guys that he was in, in jail with, and uh, gets to the, to, I think Pharaoh's, uh, gets to Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh, he goes and interprets his dream, and then he rises to, to basically uh, in charge of everything other than Pharaoh, 
and um, all of a sudden he gives them wisdom and how to store things up and to be able to provide for the famine that was going to come. So just a little brief synopsis. Now we're at this place where his brothers are coming to Joseph, just like the dream. And we're in uh, verse uh, 40, uh, 27, I believe, 43 verse 27. And it says, And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man whom you spoke is he still alive? So the brothers are coming to Joseph, and Joseph is asking about dad. They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive, and they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. There comes the dream. There's a lot in this, guys. Like, there are things that God is calling you to do that it's going to be out of the box that's going to be uncomfortable for you and for your families. Not all the time. Sometimes they're comfortable. Sometimes it's better. But what happens later on? The result of that. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brothers Benjamin and his mother's son and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out. For his compassion grew warm for his brothers, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. See, Joseph had some time to spend alone. I think it was like three years he was in prison. Joseph was able to contemplate what had happened. See, Joseph knew his history. That's one thing that you can count on, is if you were a Jew, if you were an Israelite, they went over the history. Matter of fact, in order, the first, uh, they study the Pentateuch, right? They study the Old Testament, and you have to memorize it. Joseph knew his history. Joseph knew his dad and what a liar he was. Joseph knew his brothers and where they learned to lie and manipulate from. But you will not find one time Joseph ever bad-mouthing them at all. Joseph's, this was Joseph's moment. This was his moment to say, do you see what you did to me? Joseph was 17 years old. And he was thrown in a pit. I don't think we see the reality of this. He was then given to strangers. People that do horrible things with people. He was prostituted out, you can say. Then he was put in jail. I don't know about you, but usually people that go through some difficult times go to jail, right? It's not the nicest place to be. He's a boy. But he was alone, and the Bible says, and the Lord is with him. See, there are some difficult times we will go through in our lives, and there will be places that, that God will lead us to that are very difficult and very hard. And it's not easy but the Lord can be with you in them. Many times we want to change that circumstance 
And yes, sometimes those circumstances do need to change. Sometimes our environments do need to change at its right time. Sometimes it's not right time right now. But Jesus, the Lord will be with you. And He'll sustain you in those difficult times, in those difficult situations. And there's a place where you and Jesus can experience this relationship that builds you and prepares you for what's next. That grows you and transforms you and that heals you. And this is what we find with Joseph. We'll go to verse 31 through 34. No, I'm sorry. Verse 45, I mean chapter 45, verses 1 through 16. So he sends him back and tells him, bring, bring, his, bring the father and, and all this stuff. And his brothers are coming now. And uh, we find Joseph meeting them once again. Then Joseph could not control himself. This is 45 verse 1. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. That must have been loud. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Come near to me. And that's what love does. It causes others to come near to you. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph does not hold back on what they did. And when you confront someone and what they've done, you do not hold back either. He lays it on the line. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. This is amazing. This is grace. Because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not, carry, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brothers Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father. They fell upon his brother Benjamin. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin talked to him. I'm sorry. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After this, his brothers talked to him. We find Joseph weeping 
at the fact that now I can tell you who I am. I've been lost all this time. I've been dead to the family all this time. I've been away for all this time. I was sold into slavery all this time. I've been alone all this time. I haven't had my brothers. I haven't had my father. I haven't had my sisters. I've had nobody, but I had Jesus. And now here I am, and I get to tell you who I am. And instead of being in hate and in anger and in and revengeful, love wins in this. God's love in Joseph wins. And I want you to to know that sometimes through the pain and the hurt that we go through in our lives, we think we are so weak and we think we are the victim. But I want you to know something. When you can forgive, all of a sudden, whatever they did to hurt you can no longer hurt you. And whatever they did to you, you begin to forgive and all of a sudden you become very, very strong and very, very powerful. Not in a prideful way, but in a very humble way and a very real way. Because when you are not going to allow what someone did hurt you, they can't hurt you. Joseph was untouchable in this moment. There's nothing more you could do to Joseph. That's why the Lord was with him. And he wraps his arms around Benjamin and cries. And he grabs his brothers and he cries on their, on their shoulders. He's crying for joy. Do you know how long I waited to wrap my arms around you? Church, there are some of you here that are crying and waiting to wrap your arms around some of the people in your life that you, you swore you would never wrap your arms around. I'm not saying it's going to happen for you. I'm not going to promise you false stuff. But I'm telling you it's possible. It'll shock you and what God will do, and who he will lead you to, and who he will help you deal with to reconcile with. You find Joseph weeping. You find him wrapping his arms around him because Joseph was not going to repeat the past. Joseph was not going to live this life cut off. Joseph was not going to make the excuse. Joseph was going to look back so he could move forward. Joseph was looking reality right in the face. And did you see, he said, you didn't send me, God sent me. You didn't do this, God did this. There's a place in Scripture that says what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God always means for good, church. God always means it for good in your life. No matter how hard, no matter how bad, no matter how painful, He means it for good in your life. He is the only one that can resurrect. He is the only one that can redeem. He is the only one that can take the most ugly, despicable, deplorable things in our life and turn them around and make them beautiful. He is the one that turns beauty for ashes. And if it doesn't happen in this life, it'll happen in the next. Because He is a God that is true to His Word. He is true to his word. It is amazing, this story. Chapter 46, verse 46. Pharaoh says, they all, took, they all took their livestock and their goods which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with them. They're there. The dream is fulfilled. What dreams that God has for you? 
Where does he, what land does he want to take you to? What place does he want you to live in? What place where maybe, maybe even your family is being held up because God is calling you to do what he's called you to do, to follow through on what he's asking you to do? I was 17 one time. I met Jesus. And I remember in my heart, I remembered, I finally found it, mom and dad. I found the truth. I found what we're looking for. We've been fighting. We've been in this dysfunction. We've been in this alcoholism. We've been in this abuse. We've been in this uh, manipulation for so long in my life, in our lives. And I found it. I found the truth. And I go home and tell them, guess what? And I remember being rejected. I remember being put aside. I remember being looked at like I was crazy. And years later, I don't know, 10, 11 years later, that night when I went home at 17, my dad said, I will never step in a church, in your church, ever. By that weekend, he was there. He had went to jail. He had got arrested. I invited the minister. The minister talked to him. He was there on that Sunday. And then that conversation came up, yeah, but this and that and religion, and all of a sudden, he was gone again. But like 11 years later, I remember my dad saying, Rodney, you saved me. My dad says it wrong, right? I didn't save him. Jesus saved him. To hear my dad say that. If I would have, if I would have succumbed to the pressure of my culture and my religion I was brought up in, if I would have succumbed to the manipulation and the control and the influence that was in my life, I wouldn't be here today with you guys. And my mom and dad wouldn't be saved today. And my sister, right? My brother... You can trust Jesus. Jesus will see you through. I want to go back to, um, uh, I think it's, I think it's 37, 36 maybe. Let's see here. Verse 30, uh, chapter 39. Uh, chapter 39, it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and um, let me get prepared here for a minute here. Okay. Um, and Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. There you go. You see it again. I know we're going back, but there's a reason why. Trust me. And he became a successful man. Joseph became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian's master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in, the sight, in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, so that was the first time, and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time, he, had him, he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph, Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So we left all that he had in Joseph's charge because of him. He had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Joseph had it made, right? He was in charge. And uh, Joseph left, was in charge of everything. So, so actually, uh, the Egyptian uh, officer, 
Potiphar was able to just chill and relax. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Um, now Joseph was a handsome in form and, and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master has, has no concern about anything in his house, and he has, put me, he has put everything that he has in my charge. He, is not, he has not greater in, his, in this house than I am. He is not greater than in this house than him. So he's the same, he's the same with him, right? He says, Nor has he kept me back from anything except you. Because you are his wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Do you think there's, there's any uh, sexual sin in Joseph's past? I believe, uh, I thought I marked it down, but I believe it's Genesis 20. Well, we find Abraham, right? Sleeps, not, this isn't where it says it, but Abraham sleeps with uh, Hagar because he was not patient to wait for, for him to be able to have a child from Sarah. But here's Abraham, and this is what he does to his wife. This really bothers me, uh, but I'm probably guilty of the same thing. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he uh, sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of, his, of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Amalek, king of Gerar, Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Amalek in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. So Abraham prostitutes his wife out, gives him to this king, and God intervenes and said, You're a dead man. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because there has been sexual uh, uh, sin in, in Joseph's past over and over again. Joseph was deciding it stops here. It stops here. Right. Uh, so we're going to go back to Joseph's story. And he says, and verse 10 it says, and this is 39 verse 10, and, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me, but he left his garment and in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So here's an example. Here's a couple of things that are going on that are very, very important. It's important for us to realize, and it's important for us to look at. Um, when it comes to sexual sin, there is no, like, going by it, petting it, playing with it. There's none of that. Joseph is a perfect example of what you do when it comes to sexual temptation, okay? Sexual temptation, you run from it. Proverbs 7, I'm going to go to Proverbs 7. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with going back to go forward? I'm sorry, but it's a little detour that we got to go to. Proverbs is somewhere in the Bible, right? Psalms, Proverbs, Proverbs 7. There we go. If you go to the middle of the Bible, you're always safe because you know you're going to get Proverbs or Psalms, one of the two. 
Okay. Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7 talks about, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commands and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them around your finger. So um, it starts to, uh, Proverbs 7 starts to talk about what? T- about wisdom, right? But check this out. It says, verse 5, to keep you from the forbidden woman. So wisdom says, stay away from the forbidden woman. Now, I, I don't believe that this is particularly, I mean, it can talk particularly about a forbidden woman, but it's really about sexual sin uh, in the form of adultery. From the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. There you go. There's Joseph, a young man but he's not lacking sense. Uh, passing along the street near her corner, uh, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening and at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stray at, stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with a bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices Sounds like satanic to me. And today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my clothes, uh, I mean, I spread my couch with coverings, colored linens, Egyptian linens. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. When it comes to sexual sin, there's much more beneath it than just the temptation to do it or the actual act in itself. So I don't want you to take this as, oh, just stay away from this temptation. There's a reason why people are caught up, we get caught up in sexual sin. But one of the things I want you to notice, and there's another part in here that says, do not go by her door. And it's not really talking about a person, but it's talking about sexual temptation. Do not go by the door. If you are trying to get out of sexual sin, you have to get some way away from the door. Now, back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, you had to go somewhere to get access to that door. But all of you know right now what I'm about to say. It takes two seconds to get access through something digitally, right? Through the phone. So, a little bit personal here. First time I ever saw pornography, I was probably seven or eight years old. Jumped, in the be- jumped into, um, my grandma's house was locked, so I found one of the windows, jumped in, it was my uncle's room, and there was stuff everywhere. I was hooked ever since. Not alone did I go through that, but I also went through sexual abuse. So my reality of what sexuality is about is, was warped and is still being redeemed. 
I get married, right? Um, I, was, uh, I was involved with girls at 13 years old, from 13 until about 17 when I came to Christ. That was one of the miracles God did in my life that I didn't continue in that sexual sin with another person when I came to Christ. That was only God's miracle. That's not me at all. But I was involved that whole time. I carried that into my marriage, right? So I dated my wife, and for that time that we were together, I, to, I, to, I told her, I'm never going to tell you I love you, and I'm never going to hold your hand. I'm never going to kiss you. I know that sounds extreme, but that's my story, not your story. Came to the point where she calls her pastor and says, Pastor, he doesn't want to tell me he loves me. Something's wrong with him. We go in, and I told the pastor, if you don't appreciate that I'm not going to tell her I love her, because if I tell her I love her, I'm probably going to sleep with her, then you got the problem, not me, and I'm fine walking away from this. Because that was me. That was my story. Love equals sex, right? I knew the steps to get a girl from liking me and us being in love to holding hands to kissing to hugging to heavy petting to making out to having sex. I knew the steps. And I couldn't start with step one because that was the door for me. Do you know what I'm saying? And how I knew that at that young age, I don't know. But I knew that when I came to Christ and I was, there's no way, no how, because I want to marry someone and respect them. But I still struggle with pornography. So I got married and the first time I kissed my wife, was on that, that place when we said, I do. But during that time, I still struggled with pornography. My wife didn't know. I couldn't tell her. Couldn't tell my pastor. I mean, believe me, you go tell your pastor, you're done. Like, ministry over, life's over, you're, you're put on discipline, like, you're cut off. Matter of fact, he never talked about his sexuality, ever. How am I supposed to feel safe and talk about it? And that's one of the ways that you stay stuck, by not talking about it. So later on, what happens? It starts to surface. I start to feel lonely, and I, and I wasn't supposed to feel lonely because Christ was in my life. And about five, six years into our marriage, or maybe four years into our marriage, I have two kids. My wife was very busy attending to them. The attention was off of me. I felt like I didn't get attention. A girl started to talk to me. I started to talk to her, a, a woman at the bank. And we began to talk. And then we went to call each other on the phone. And only by God's grace, I didn't sleep with her. By God's grace, I didn't sleep with her. My wife praying for me. And uh, by his grace, he delivered me from that. And why do I tell you this? Because it was very clear to me that I was a dead man. I was a dead man. If I stayed in that relationship, I was a dead man. God made that clear. All I saw was death. And the reason why I talk about that or I share that in this moment is because I know, without a doubt, that our culture is so sexualized and the objectivity of women is so pervasive, and not just women, but men and every other person, that that's one of the reasons why we are so confused and we, we hurt each other so much. I don't believe that these mass murders and, um, and all this uh, police brutality and civilian brutality, all these things are happening just because people are mad and mean. No, I believe it comes, a lot of it comes, stems from this. When you can take a woman or a man and look at them objectively for your pleasure and they're no longer a person, your heart becomes hardened 
just like Abraham put his wife out to go with this king to sleep with her. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine being Sarah, right, with this foreigner, this guy, and he's taking you into his chambers, and he's going to do things to you. Could you imagine that? And you have your husband there that was supposed to protect you and be there for you. Why do you think God says, you're a dead man? Because I want you to hear me this, church. You are a dead man when it comes to pornography. You are a dead man. It is evil, it is wicked, and it will kill you. Why do I say that? I say it out of compassion and love. And the reason why is because it affects how we treat each other. It affects how we talk to each other. It affects how we look at each other. You know you live it in every day. People at the office, in your work, in the public, they say horrible things to each other all day long. And the sad thing is, it's like Romans chapter 1, where God says they did deplorable things. They did uh, um, things that should not be done, and he gave them over, and he gave them over, and he gave them over. Three times he gave them over. God's grace was my, in my life that day when he turned me around and kept me from sleeping with this woman and, and divorcing my wife and following after that, and I wouldn't be here. Because God didn't give me over. God had grace in my life. God has not given you over. The very worst thing that could happen to you is that God would give you over to do those things. Those things aren't popular and cool and awesome and normal. They're abnormal to humanity. Let me tell you something. When someone just touches you and they're not related to you, they're not your mom or dad that should just touch you. Just a touch, it does something to your soul. Just a touch. I'm not even talking stroking or hugging or anything sexual. I'm talking just a touch. That's why it feels good when someone gives you a hug, right? It does something to you, shaking someone's hand. But if they touch you and they don't belong touching you, it does something to you. If they do it to you and, and, and you're in a relationship, it does something to you. Why? Because sexuality hits the soul. Anytime you enter into any kind of sexuality, whether you're physically doing it or where you're watching it or you're involved in it or you're around it or you talk about it or you listen to it, it hits your soul because it's supposed to. It is a bond between a husband and a wife and it's supposed to mingle their soul together in a good way. It's life-giving. It's beautiful. It's, it's to give support and encouragement and bonding. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's a picture of Christ in the church. It's a beautiful thing, not a sick thing, not a bad thing. But anything out of that is death, is deplorable, is wicked, is an abomination. Why does God say these words? Because he's trying to get our attention. He's crying out and letting us know, guess what? If you continue in this, it will kill you. This is not something you can manage. This is not something you can play with. This is not something you could just figure out one day. Now's the time to get the help. Now's the time to cut it off. And to some of us, in certain situations, like for me, when I was first starting to leave it, I could not have access to anything that would put me right back to where I was. I definitely would take different routes than where this person worked. I avoided that person like the plague. And it's not that they were the problem, I'm the problem. According to pornography, you cannot have access to it and get out of it. It's just 
That's just not wisdom. The Bible says stay away from the door. That's the door for the beginning. There might be some point in your life, and I don't even want to say this, uh, you know, depending with those around you and praying with you and, and encourage you that, yeah, maybe you might be able to have access. So, for example, I don't have a password to our, um, well, when we used to have it, cable TV. I don't, and I don't want to have access. For some reason, television is a very easy for me to sin. Now, I do have access to my internet, but that hasn't been an area for me to sin in in the last 10 years. But that's different. If you had that, I don't care what you have to do. And this isn't going to change it. That's why we got to get to the root of this. And the reason why I'm speaking to, to this in this context is because if we don't deal with the stuff in, uh, under the surface, if we don't deal with the reality of this issue, it's going to hurt you and hurt your kids. You think just because you're doing it and you're managing it and it's a way and nobody knows about it that it's not affecting. Spiritually, there's something that happens to a family. There's something that, that happens that God has that affects every single one. That's why the Bible talks about when one sins, right? It affects the whole body of Christ, right? A little leaven spoils a whole lump. If the, if the hand is being hurt, right, it affects the rest of the body. Even with our own natural bodies, we can see that. I don't care if it's our toenail. If something's wrong with our toenail, it affects the whole body. It's the same thing. We're compared to a body. And if you sin, it affects you, your church, your family, yourself, and your soul in this area. I'm not coming to you as, I hope you don't take me as, like, I'm coming, like, look, I know better. I don't know better. I have to be careful to this day. I'm highly aware of the opposite sex highly aware and I don't want to be unaware I want to be very sensitive in that area I'm highly aware of what I look at what I don't look at I'm highly aware I don't want to go back there it's a lonely place it's a broken place it's a never-ending place it's a place that takes you farther than you want to go and makes you pay more than what you wanted to pay but I want to make this clear is that you've got to cut the door to some of you, that means you might have to have a flip phone, and if you need to go to the library to use a computer, go do it for now. Be honest. Cut off Wi-Fi, cut off the cable, cut it off. To some of you, you're in a home with a family, put the computer in the middle of the kitchen, and mom or someone else, daughter has the password when you get on, and they know what you're doing. I'm not saying these things are going to fix it. They're not. There's a root. I'm not talking about roots now. That's a whole other sermon, a whole long time. A lot of going through your history, your story, working through it, getting counseling. I got counseling. I don't want to be that person. But for the first time, I was able to be honest with my wife and say, this is what I did. This is what I've been doing. This is what happened to me when I was a kid. All this stuff finally came out, shedding light on it. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about these patterns. We're talking about this, this past. Let me ask you this. Uh, do you see any pornography in your mom or dad, right? You seen it in, do you see their marriages great? Has, has your dad been great sexually and your grandfather's been great sexually? Like they've been chased and, and, and they were also faithful to one woman? It's going to be a no. Well, why do you think you have that in your life? You didn't just wake up one day. They taught you things. They passed these subconscious messages to you over and over on how to view a woman, how to view sexuality, because it was passed to them. Well, you're the Joseph today. You're the Joseph in your family. God has given you a dream to become part of a new family, the family of God. 
And this new family of God has new ways of doing things, things that are in the light, where you can live free from these things, where you can live in victory. And your victories might be short-lived. You might have a day of victory, a week of victory, a month of victory, and then fall, and then six months, and then fall, then a year, then fall, and then maybe never fall. I don't know. But God wants to bring you victory. God wants you to look back and really realize, and this isn't just about sexuality, this is about everything. Any addiction, any problem, any negative thinking, any habits, anything that we've done, fear of, fear of, uh, of people, not being able to speak the truth, uh, fear of conflict, I mean, everything. It affects every part of our lives. Going back and looking at what happened, what are the patterns, and see it so you can repent and turn from it and saying, I don't have to be that way. That's not how my story's going to end. That might have been how my story began. Yeah. But it is death. It is death. And I'm not saying you're a bad person because you're doing that. I'm not saying that. We're all bad. We're all sinners. I'm just saying there's more to that story. There's many reasons why we go to sexual sin. There's many reasons. Most of it's loneliness, but there's a lot of reasons. Control, false intimacy, all kinds. So going back in order to go forward, true spiritual maturity is not, is not about denial or illusion. It's about reality. The reason we go back is not to blame right, or point the finger. It illuminates the present by looking at the past mistakes. And yes, it is painful. I'm sure today you've gone through a lot of pain. So discipleship then is putting off the sinful patterns, right, of our habits and families, of our families of origin, and being transformed into a new life as new members of Christ's family. The good news is that our family of origin does not determine our future. And what he has gone, that he has, what has gone on before you is not your destiny. It's not your destiny. The story's not over. It's never over. The most significant language in the New Testament for Christians is adoption into a family of God. It's a radical new beginning. And when you place your faith in Christ, you are spiritually reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit in the family of Jesus. And we are transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. If I could have the, the worship team come up. I, I brought out this last point because I wanted to make sure I feel like hopefully it drives the point, right? And uh, I, think, I think this part will, will definitely reiterate it. And I know in my sermons I tend to say the same thing over and over. Uh, hopefully nobody misses what, we're, what I'm trying to talk about. But The Word of God says that when you do end up committing adultery, it, it, like, it, it brings death. It brings death like to your soul. And I want you to know that my soul was damaged. 
when I spoke to this other person and considered them. Um, I mean, I hurt my kids. I've had to tell them that, you know, now as they're older. Um, I, had to, I had to, you know, face the pain on my wife's face. Um, to see her betrayed. She didn't deserve it. You know, she was, she's always been a great example to me. She has the opposite life. She's never been sexually abused. She's never been promiscuous. And that's what's brought me some sexual sanity because God forbid she was like that. I don't know where we would be in our relationship. So God set me up with the right person, right? I remember I'd say when I'm selling parts and this really beautiful girl comes up to me, like I don't know how to act. Like do I look at her in the eye? Do I, I mean, what do I say? Do I not help her? Do I avoid her? He's like, no, you help her. And it's okay that you feel like she's attractive because you're human. That's not wrong. It's when you take it from there, right? I remember her telling me that and walking me through that. But going back to the damage, I, um, I, had, I went through depression twice. Not right away after that, but later on. I became confused on making decisions. I became very indecisive. I became confused about a lot of things. Um, I don't think I've recovered. I don't know if I'll ever recover. And, and, and I'm okay with that because God is sufficient. But it, it costs me. And I wish it would have never cost me. I wish I, I could stand before you that that would have never happened. That I would never hurt anybody. You think you don't hurt people when you're doing that. It hurts people. And it could have cost me my life. It could have cost me my life. And I want to say that God's message today is as we speak the word, like he says, it's death and it's life, church. And he's speaking to you and letting you know it's going to stop here. I love you so much that I don't want it to continue. I want to confront you with the truth about yourself and about your past so you can get through this, this, this barrier that's been keeping you between you and him in that place of peace and joy. I have experienced tons of freedom and a much sane and healthy sexuality that I thought I'd never have. And I love my wife way more than I did that day. And I'm growing in that love for her. I have 21 years married with her. And that's because God was so good to tell me I was wrong. And the things that happened to me were wrong. And the way we looked at life was wrong. And he allowed me to deal with it. And that's what we're doing today. Don't run. Don't, don't. Don't allow yourself to go away. Know that he's loving, he's gracious, and he'll work through it, and it's a process. But it does cost you a lot. It costs us a lot to keep suppressing the truth. God's so gracious, he'll let it come out sooner or later. All right? If you're here today, everybody's eyes closed. If you're here today, and you already know there's things that you're going to have to deal with, would you open your heart as we play these songs, as we sing, as we come take communion and say, Jesus, 
I believe that you died for me on the cross. And that you already knew that I was going to have to deal with this and confront this and I was going to be in this place. And that, that reality was going to come hit me. But that's why you died and that I can trust you. And this is what I've been looking for. I've been, I've been caught up in these habits and, and you're going to set me free day after day, little by little, and you're going to work with me. And I want to trust that. I want to be this new creation in Christ, as you say, day by day. Maybe you've never come to Christ. Maybe you've been around church and heard it, and, 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 and they told you that you were disgusting and you're messed up and there's no hope for you. Um, you know, put on a suit and, and, and pretend and, and never talk about it and never deal with it and just keep moving on and we don't talk about the past. And you want to be free. You want Jesus to come to you. You want to experience growth. You want him to transform you into this new family. I'm asking you to come to Jesus today, to open your heart and say, that's me. As I come, I, I want you to come into my heart, Lord. I want you to be my Lord. I want to experience that love and that relationship you have for me. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. He died for everything that happened to you and everything that you've done. There's no shame. He has the light. He is the light. And he wants to shine it on our lives so we can clearly see and walk towards him. Would you walk towards him today? In Jesus' name, amen.